I'm Anton Hellman. And I'm Teresa Chin. And, and this, this is, is the, the Journal Jam, Jam Podcast. Podcast, where we blend interviews with leading researchers of important emergency medicine journal articles and the best of crowdsourced social media-based opinions of emergency medicine providers from around the world. In this Journal Jam podcast number three, we have Dr. Michelle Lin from Academic Life and EM interviewing two of the authors of the article entitled Ultrasound versus Computed Tomography for Suspected Nephrolithiasis, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014. Now, the cool thing about the study is that the authors are from two different specialties. Dr. Rebecca Smith-Bindman from the Department of Radiology at UCSF and Dr. Ralph Wong from the Department of EM also at UCSF. First off, we'll hear from Dr. Lin and from Dr. Smith-Binman a bit about what the study was trying to answer and how they did the study. We have two authors of 24 authors, that's impressive, of a multi-center study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014 talking about what should be the first-line imaging modality for patients with undifferentiated pain who you suspect kidney stones. And this is a comparative effectiveness study Three arms looking at ED bedside ultrasound, radiology ultrasound versus CT as the first line uh, imaging modality. Looking at three primary outcomes about missing high risk diagnoses with complications, looking at the cumulative radiation dose and looking at cost. And here's Dr. Smith Bidman describing a bit about how the study was done. So the study is called a pragmatic trial. And what that means is you're studying care in actual clinical settings rather than in sort of the more idealized setting. So in our project, we said, what if patients were randomized to get the first test of one of the three arms you described? The first test being CT, ultrasound by radiologist, or ultrasound by emergency medicine physician. And then let care continue as it would without intervening on any other part of the project. So our question was very specific. Does that first test influence outcomes? And the place that we were starting from was where Pretty much everyone in the emergency department who has a symptom looking like kidney stones in the past was getting a CT scan. The last number of years, almost all of those patients got a CT scan. So we're questioning whether if we change that and start with one of these other tests, but then let care progress, would we see differences in outcomes? And and I'll admit we were a little bit nervous about it because we were really changing care for two-thirds of our patients. So let's talk a bit about the background to this study. First, We know that about 90% of renal stones pass on their own, and the smaller the stone, the more likely they are to pass. So generally speaking, nephrolithiasis is a self-limited condition. It resolves by itself the vast majority of the time. Our job in the ED is to control pain, to be on the lookout for complicated stones like those associated with abscess or pyelonephritis, and to anticipate who might need urologic intervention. Okay, Anton, and I think there's one more job for us emerging docs is to entertain a wide differential diagnosis, such as the leaky AAA, PE, things like that, that might not completely fit the renal colic picture that we have to cast that wide differential because that's what we're here for. Absolutely. And when it comes to the use of CT scans in the ED in general, the pendulum has started to swing and more and more we're finding ways to avoid radiating young patients with CTs with the added benefit of maybe decreasing length of stays in the ED as well as costs to the healthcare system. So Teresa, how do the sensitivities of CT and ultrasound compare when it comes to stones? 
So CT is definitely more sensitive than ultrasound overall. But what we do know is that CT and ultrasound are similar in their ability to pick up hydronephrosis and big stones that are going to need lithotripsy or some kind of intervention by a urologist. And so ultrasound often misses those little stones, but those are stones that are very likely to pass spontaneously. So where ultrasound falls down and has a lower sensitivity, it's because of those little stones that will pass anyways, and those are the kinds of stones that we don't worry about. Exactly. So Anton, if CT is so much better, why do we even care about using ultrasound at all? Well, at least in the States, Teresa, there's been about a tenfold increase in the use of CT for renal colic over the past 15 years which of course has been associated with an increase in radiation exposure. And this trend has happened despite a steady rate of diagnosis and hospital admission for nephrolithiasis. So we know that aggressive imaging does not improve outcomes in renal colic patients. So here's how the trial was done. This was a randomized 15-center ED imaging trial, which is pretty darn rare to begin with. And it was big. 2,759 renal colic patients where the number one primary diagnostic concern was renal colic. That is, the ED doc had a high suspicion for nephrolithiasis. Now, these patients were randomized to either POCUS, radiology department ultrasound, or CT as their initial imaging test. Now, it's important to note that it was left up to the ED doc's discretion to do more imaging in the ED after the initial test. So, Teresa, in this study, they looked at a few primary outcomes and secondary outcomes. Can you just tell our listeners what were the primary outcomes? So, the primary outcomes were the 30-day incidence of high-risk diagnoses that were predefined. So, these were leaking AAA, pneumonia with sepsis, eruptor appendicitis, diverticulitis with abscess or sepsis, gut ischemia or perforation, aseptic kidney stone, ovarian torsion, or aortic dissection. So these are all those big, bad, scary things that we're always trying to worry about when we're thinking about uh, alternative diagnoses. So they try to cover all of those. So I guess from an EBM perspective, it's good that they predefined all these nasty... Exactly. Yeah, great. And then the two other things they looked at were the six-month cumulative radiation exposure and then cost as well. Secondary outcomes were adverse events, pain, return visits to the ED, admits, and diagnostic accuracy. Okay. So those were the outcomes that they looked at. Now, it's very important for all these studies to know what the exclusion criteria because it's never a good idea to apply the results of a study to the wrong population. So, Teresa, what were the exclusion criteria in this study? So I think the authors are to be congratulated for their work in a priori, again, thinking about all the exclusions that we might have in our heads when we're thinking about using this study question and the exclusion criteria reflects that. So they exclude men over 285 pounds and women over 250 pounds because ultrasound can be hard with patients who have a larger body habitus. Also, um, patients with uh, solitary kidneys, for which we definitely want to get ACT, similarly with renal transplant patients and dialysis patients. And most importantly, what they did was they excluded patients in whom the physicians thought they were at high risk for an alternative serious diagnosis. So your pretest probably was through the roof for something else like perforated appendicitis or ovarian torsion, then you would go with that diagnostic algorithm and they'd be excluded from the study. Um, your leading diagnosis had to be renal colic. 
In other words, we're talking about the patients with a high pretest probability of nephrolithiasis. There are a few studies out there, both out of the U.S. and Canada, that show alternative diagnosis rates of about 6 or 7%. But we all know that sometimes we order a CT renal colic study, not only looking for kidney stones, but because the patient has a bit of right or left lower quadrant tenderness, and we might have a bit of a suspicion for an uncomplicated appendicitis or diverticulitis. Yeah, exactly. So if the diagnosis is a little bit muddy or unclear, it wasn't a slam dunk uh, renal colic, that's when we would exclude them from the study. Now, here's Dr. Lin asking about why there was such a high rate of CT use in this study, even after an ultrasound was done initially. Interestingly, even though people were randomized into ultrasound EM, ultrasound radiology, and, and CT, still about a third of the patients in the ultrasound arms still got a CT. And I'm trying to figure out, can you help us decide, you know, who should get that, that CT after the, the initial ultrasound? As you mentioned, about a third of patients went on to get a CT scan, and that varied dramatically across sites. For some sites, we had 15 uh, clinical sites in the trial across the country. Very few patients went on to get CT scans. And other sites, a large number of patients went on to get CT scans. And while clearly some of that was driven by patient factors, meaning there was a need to get other imaging. Some of that was driven by physician preference and being uncertain that they wanted to rely on the ultrasound, maybe because it was a relatively uh, new process to start with the ultrasound. So most patients didn't go on to get CT scanning. And those that did tended to have a non-diagnostic ultrasound. So patients who had a clear diagnosis on the ultrasound were less likely to go on to CT than patients who were um, undifferentiated after the imaging. But what we basically did is leave it to the clinical judgment of the physician caring for the patient to decide if it was necessary. And relying on that as the primary basis, the caring physician said, I do or don't need additional imaging, resulted in no difference in outcomes. And so I can't really answer your question right now about when you need to go on to get a CT scan. But again, it varied a lot across sites. A lot of it had to do with site-specific preferences. In our study, patients were all at high risk for stones. So we asked the enrolling physicians not to enroll patients who they thought had acute appendicitis or acute cholecystitis or aortic pathology. We said, we don't, those patients are not the patients we'd like in our study. We want patients at high risk of stones. So in patients at high risk for stones, starting with ultrasound and then going on to additional imaging at your discretion seems to work very well. If you had point of care ultrasound first, you would tend to get CT more often than if uh, radiology ultrasound was, was performed first. And I think that speaks to the physician confidence of point-of-care ultrasound. Um, and hopefully this, this study will promote point-of-care ultrasound and allow emergency physicians to be more confident um, in that modality and order CT less um, after a point-of-care ultrasound. So again, 41% of patients who initially got POCUS went on to get a CT. Now, why is this? As Dr. Wong explained, it's probably because of the lack of confidence we have diagnosing nephrolithiasis on POCUS, and because ultrasound will often be normal as it misses small stones. Just remember that a negative ultrasound for stones in a patient who obviously has renal colic clinically doesn't necessarily mean you need to go on to CT. Sometimes we just need to trust our clinical judgment. That said, Anton, 
Ultrasound has always been a modality that's been driven by the technician. So it really depends on the experience and the training of the person holding the probe to generate those great images. And I've seen some of our ultrasound fellows go from, you know, your average ultrasonographer to generate these beautiful images. So I know it, it has to do with deliberate practice. And one of the things that we do see is a wide spectrum of people doing point of care ultrasound throughout North America. So some people are fellowship trained and some people have done your basic core elements that you do in a residency. Um, and that's highly variable. So you have to think about yourself and how you feel comfortable about this diagnosis and whether or not you know how to do this particular scan. So here I'd like to go over the results of the study. First, it didn't matter which group you were in. Patients who were randomized to initially get POCUS or radiology department ultrasound or CT had pretty much exactly the same percentage of bad missed outcomes. Yeah, it's really nice to know the percentage of bad outcomes was only 0.4%, no matter which group you were in. About one-third of patients, by virtue of having only an ultrasound to begin with, were able to avoid any radiation exposure and didn't have any bad outcomes as a result. You might be asking, well, what evil diagnoses were missed? A handful of patients ended up being diagnosed with things like PE, ovarian torsion, acute cholecystitis. These are some examples. But whether this patient got a CT or an ultrasound didn't make a difference for the miss rate for these things. Now, you'd think that the patients who got ultrasound would have a shorter length of stay than the patients who got CT, but it turns out that in this study, the length of stay was about the same, around six and a half hours for all three cohorts of patients. I'm guessing this is because many of the patients who initially had an ultrasound went on to get a CT. Next, Michelle Lin is going to ask about the generalizability of this study. Great. So uh, question number two I had about generalizability. Whenever I look at these huge multicenter studies, one, I'm just befuddled by the amount of paperwork that must have happened behind the scenes. Yeah. But <laughs> I look at generalizability across the sites. And, and across the board, if you look at the different arms, uh, everything was, was pretty uh, evenly distributed. And But what I was interested in was the cohort that you had. You had about 40%, 4-0% four, of patients had previous stones, and, and you only had about a 60% incidence of those with, with microscopic hematuria. And just in my mind, that's not kind of the, the usual patient profile or cohort that I would think. And I uh, just wanted to know your thoughts about your, your cohort. In terms of the generalizability, we, we worked in uh, 15 large academic medical centers. And I think the results are highly generalizable to those centers with those kinds of centers. With the main caveat is our collaborating physicians all had expertise in doing emergency medicine ultrasound. So they were all trained. They self-identified as being competent in doing it and being certified in doing it, being allowed to do it at their institution. So these results would not pertain to people who have not gotten that, that qualification and training. I think for the last question, you were saying that you thought the distribution of lab findings, past medical history in our cohort was different than you suspected. And if we take the example of hematuria, I think our cohort is the largest cohort of patients who present with suspected kidney stones that's been described. And so while I agree with you, we had thought that more would have hematuria, the data don't pan that out. It suggests that not as many have hematuria as you might expect. And so we have a lot of ancillary papers that we're going to try to explore some of 
the lessons in our cohort about how patients with stones present, what kind of pain they have, how the pain resolves, how many go on to get different kinds of surgical treatment versus pass the stones spontaneously. But some of the things we're learning are not exactly what we had anticipated to begin with. Wow. So only 63% of these patients had hematuria and also only half the patients had CVA tenderness. It's nice to know that our diagnostic accuracy is pretty good for renal colic just by gestalt, despite the fact that hematuria and CVA tenderness has pretty poor predictive value. I would just add about patients with a past history of stone. If you've had a first episode of stone, you have about a 50% chance of having another stone within just a few years, five years. Um, So we know it's very common. And other large studies that have been retrospective, like uh, uh, for example, the Chris Moore's derivation set where he derived the stone score, where he had about 5,000 patients that he looked at retrospectively, the prevalence of a prior history of stone was something like one-third. Our cohort, which was prospectively collected, but had a prevalence of about 40%. So I think those numbers are very similar. It's actually very telling that our physicians wanted to enroll these subjects uh, with a prior history of stone because you know some physicians would say I don't ever get a CT scan on patients with a prior history of stone but we all know that that's probably not true because many patients get uh, repeated scans like two or three or five scans in a year so I think it was important that we included prior history and it didn't surprise me that it was 40 percent of our of our cohort yeah, we have a saying that, I, that I've heard a lot, which is CTs beget more CTs, which yeah. you, you never want to hear. So, yeah, so, so don't do the first one. Yeah, I wonder if you, if you have a high enough pretest probability, such as someone with, you know, three previous stones, this feels like my exact stone. I'm wondering if you even need imaging at all. Hey, Anton, wasn't there something in the Annals Journal Club about this question? Yeah, Teresa, actually, in the Annals of Emergency Medicine Journal Club, Rory Spiegel and Ryan Radecki of Emergency Medicine Literature of Note asked the following questions. Imagine a no-imaging fourth arm was added to this study, an arm in which imaging could not be used, in which diagnosis must be established according to clinical and basic laboratory findings alone. Would this arm have differed from the others in regard to the primary effectiveness endpoints? What does this imply about the necessity of advanced imaging, either ultrasound or CT, for the diagnosis and management of renal stone disease. Well, it turns out that there was a paper in CGEM that looked at diagnostic imaging tests performed in the emergency department for suspected renal colic in Canadian EDs, and the results were actually quite surprising compared to what's going on in the U.S. Teresa, could you tell us what they found? Yeah, so that's a paper by Justin Yan and his colleagues out of Western University in Ontario, Canada. And this was a prospective cohort study looking at adult patients presenting to the ED in their tertiary care emergency departments. And so what was interesting about this study is that only about 11% of suspected renal colic actually got a CT. And that one quarter of patients, so about 25% of patients, don't even receive imaging and 44% of patients who are receiving imaging are getting ultrasound. So I think in Canada, the practice pattern is definitely lean towards ultrasound first and CT as a second choice modality, uh, if at all possible. And I think that the uh, practice pattern that's endorsed by the study that we're discussing today from the New England Journal kind of reinforces that idea. 
At this point, I'd like to throw in a few comments made on social media platforms. This one's from the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine website from Anand Senthi. And he writes that he's surprised to see that the low-dose non-contrast CT is not the standard of care for CT scanning in the U.S. for renal colic. In Australia, he says, it's the only acceptable CT scanning protocol for renal colic. Consequently, he says they've developed a very reasonable protocol where patients presenting with their first ever episode of renal colic in their lifetime get a low-dose CT, while recurrent presentations in a patient with a history of renal colic get an ultrasound. He says he definitely agrees that CT should not beget further CTs. So last question, uh, if you don't mind, which is, you know, this article, which, by the way, I looked up has an altmetric score of a ginormous number of 220 and rising. Mm -hmm. It went around all of the different um, social media sites, a lot of people discussing this. One of our our partner groups is called Urology Journal Club. It's a Twitter-based journal club called EuroJC is the hashtag. And and they went roundabout on this a couple of months ago. And uh, and a lot of these were, or actually they were primarily urologists. And I was wondering, since this paper has come out, if you've gotten any sort of feedback from them, because the bottom line I kind of got out of them was like there were three general camps of people, because uh, I think drivers or CTs are not only from the immersive department, but also from the services that we want to try to refer them to. But one group sure. says, you know what, I am happy with a KUB and a bedside ultrasound. Another group says, wait, wait, what about this new low dose uh, CT scan, which is like a renal stone protocol? And then the third one was like, you know what, just get the CT. That was a pretty small minority, but um, but still, there were three camps that I saw, and I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts. So I think those camps are are pretty descriptive, and a, a fear of sort of stepping out from what the answer is supposed to be. I'd like to just also raise another camp, which is sort of a subset of a let's just get CT scan camp, and that camp is a camp of physicians who own the CT scanner. And see, doing the CT scan is, there are no downsides to it. And by the way, it's quite profitable. So there are a lot of drivers to why we do CT so much. And a big part of the driver is uncertainty. And we have this unrealistic belief that can always answer the question. That's sort of in radiology in general. We love CT scanning. Our referring docs love CT scanning. So partly we use a lot of CT because of that. But partly we use CT scanning because it's highly profitable. And so I think it's very difficult to separate desire for doing so many CT scans when it's so profitable from the sense of what's best for the patient. And if I were the patient, I think ultrasound's a really good way to go. Now, that's not to say that there aren't situations where urologists really need a CT scan. You know, in these complex cases where they're trying to get the anatomy of where all these stones are located and what kind of procedure they're going to do, they're more comfortable in general looking at reformatted CT than they are at ultrasound. And I completely understand that and believe they should use CT when needed. But on the other hand, they also do a lot of surveillance CTs to just follow a single stone as it moves from the collecting system down the ureter to the pelvis, where I see no value whatsoever. I would spend a second addressing the topic of the stone dose, if that if that sort of seems important. There are many ways to image patients with CT for stones that use lower dose. Those are well described, but unfortunately, they're not well used. Even in the context of our trial, they weren't well used. There was a national study published by American College of Radiology a few years ago that looked at the average dose for renal stone protocol CTs, and those doses were the same as an abdominal CT. These low-dose protocols were not being used. And though, thus, while it's possible we could do these studies with low-dose, while we should be doing these studies with low-dose, we're currently not. And so I think 
minimizing these radiation doses is a mistake. Current CT, four stones has have doses that are much higher than, than we need to use. And thus, I think starting with ultrasound really makes a lot of sense. But I think there's a tide that has to move and we have to change practice. And I think coming from the emergency department is a great place to start. But the urologists are absolutely another place that we really need to try to um, influence their use of CT to start with ultrasound whenever possible. I think this drives home the point of the importance of specifying on your requisition to your radiologists what you're looking for when you order a CT and even going as far as telling them what your pretest probability is. The more your radiologist knows about what you're thinking about in terms of the diagnosis, the better they'll be able to help you choose an imaging modality that minimizes radiation, minimizes cost, let's hope, and is best for the patient. Okay, so let's see what Dr. Wong has to say about POCUS and the future of quality improvement projects and its role in the ED. In regards to point-of-care ultrasound, I think one of the ways that point-of-care ultrasound has to move is we have to really ensure high quality in our images. This study really puts a spotlight on point-of-care ultrasound, and it's our responsibility as emergency physicians to, to make sure that the studies are done uh, well and that everyone's trained to do them and that the studies are, are labeled um, and both kidneys are looked at, and the bladder is looked at, and the studies interpreted correctly. And all of that is uh, recorded in the medical record and, and to have quality assurance around all of those um, processes. Our images are being looked at now by urologists and, and radiologists, and they have to be, be of high quality. Yeah, well said. I think I think the quality of these images uh, are going to be crucial. And I think after, you know, initially when the ultrasounds first came out and fast, you know, the fast exam really made an impact in at least trauma care. I think this is also one of these landmark uh, studies that that shows that point of care ultrasound really is is making a difference, at least shifting away from getting CT for uh, these patients. So, Teresa, let's drive it all home with some take home points now. The first take-home point is that renal colic is generally a low-risk, self-resolving condition. Yeah, and complications are pretty rare. And when they do happen, they're usually pretty obvious due to the patient's story or presentation, like their discomfort and things like that. Yeah, totally. You know, one of the surprises from this study for me was that less than two-thirds of the patients had hematuria. I mean, that's just so much lower than I'm used to. Yeah, and this is very different from the traditional teaching around this. So I think it's something that we need to think about. And this is the biggest cohort. So I think that traditionally the teaching has been that very few patients don't have hematuria. But I think this study challenges that paradigm. I think we need to rethink it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, another big take-home point for me was to reassure me that we can reduce radiation exposure without missing big, bad diagnoses. Yeah, actually put it another way, regardless of what modality you choose, the miss rate is very similar, so whether CT or ultrasound. So you might as well attempt to minimize the harm via radiation or cost. Yeah, well said. The next take home, I think, is a little bit of a warning that if you do get an ultrasound and you're still not convinced that you have a solid diagnosis, it is okay to go on to CT. And conversely, if you're pretty sure that the patient has nephrolithiasis and you get a normal ultrasound... You don't necessarily have to go on to CT. Yeah, just know that the ultrasound can sometimes fail to sh uh, show those small stones, but those are the stones that are likely to pass. So 
treat them and give them analgesics and then manage them as an outpatient. Exactly. And the final take-home point I would say is that it's important for us to lobby for low-dose CTs for our renal colic patients all the time. So Anton, how do you put together all of this and how do you actually take care of your renal colic patients? So in my practice, first, I get no imaging if the patient has a history of renal stones and I have a high pretest probability clinically and if I find microscopic hematuria especially. So for those patients, I get no imaging at all. And next, for the massively obese patients or the renal patients or those that I'm seriously considering another diagnosis, then I'll get a CT without contrast, a low-dose CT if I can, for those patients. Then there's the old demented patients or psych patients who are really septic or I have no clue what's going on. And in those patients, I'll get a full abdominal CT with contrast. And then pretty much for everyone else, I'll get a radiology department ultrasound. And if I were a POCUS guru, I'd do the ultrasound in the ED, but alas, I only have basic POCUS skills. So that would be my algorithm. No imaging for patients who are obvious. Patients who were excluded in this study, so the massively obese and the uh, renal patients, or if I'm looking for another diagnosis, I'll do a low-dose CT. For the patients that I'm really confused and have no idea what's going on, I'll get a full abdominal CT with contrast, and everyone else, I'll get an ultrasound. Yeah, that's pretty much what I'd do too. I'd say that the only other thing is that first presentation of possible renal colic, that's the population that if I can, I lean towards getting a formal ultrasound down. So regardless of your POCUS skills, I think the first presentation stone is a good diagnosis to make because then it can make the next diagnosis easier. So that about wraps it up for this month's Journal Jam. We'd love to hear your suggestions for future Journal Jams. And what else do you want to tell the listeners, Teresa? So don't be shy and uh, tweet us or email us or drop a comment in the blog comments below. Yeah, join the conversation. Teresa and I are just going to leave you with one last thing to remember for next time. Let's keep on jamming on the Journal Jam. Remember, you don't have to nerd out alone. Together, Together, we're smarter. smarter.